This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's um, bow our heads together, go to the Lord in prayer, ask his guidance today. Father, thank you for your word, that in your word you have revealed to us who you are and who we are, that down through the ages, through over 2,000 years, over 40 different authors of Scripture writing from many different countries under many different uh, empires and circumstances from all walks of life, from those who were shepherds to those who were the uh, right hands of kings to those who were kings. You have revealed yourself, and in all of these books, there's no contradiction as the men who wrote wrote on some of the most controversial debated topics in all of human history, yet they did not contradict one another or disagree. They present a unified whole, one view, your view. And it is up to us as your creatures to learn how you think, who you are, and what you have revealed to us, that we may live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Now, Father, today as we focus on your word and upon the Lord Jesus Christ, May we come to understand that these things that we study are not just simply abstract truths, but they are concrete realities that affect the most minute aspect of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, or chapter 1, rather. And while you are turning there... I want to make a couple of comments today about the fact that this is a weekend when we celebrate our independence, the anniversary of the declaration of our independence. Uh, although the document was originally ratified on the 3rd and, the, and then signed by Adams and Hancock, actually it was Hancock and one other, wasn't Adams, on the 4th of July, it wasn't until August that all of the signatures were affixed to the Declaration uh, of Independence. Now, one of the debates that has gone on over the last 60 years, 70 years actually, since the end of World War II and a couple of Supreme Court decisions is this issue of the separation of church and state. And at the subtext of that is the question, is the United States a Christian nation? And I had hoped to have a more full as we'll see the word pleroma, complete analysis of this this morning. But as I got into into the study, 
uh, the last couple of days, uh, several lines of investigation opened up before me that I just did not have time to go through. And I also uncovered various realms of debate and issues going on on some of this topic that I need to uh, analyze uh, more fully. Uh, It's important, I believe, and as my ministry demonstrates, to go to original sources on all things, not just to rely on secondary sources. Uh, Secondary sources are what different historians or philosophers or or, um, political theorists write in terms of their analysis of original documents, but to go through those. And so I did not have a couple of things I needed, so I wanted to spend some time uh, studying that, so we'll get to those things later on. In recent years, a book was published by a law professor from Regent Law School, from the law school at Regent University in Virginia, and his thesis was that the Declaration of Independence is not what a lot of people have claimed it was, over the last hundred plus years, and that is a document that reflected the deist philosophy of its author, Thomas Jefferson, but that if it is properly understood within the context of its time, and if the language that's used in the Declaration of Independence is analyzed within its historical usage, especially in English common law, that these terms were not deist language. They were language that reflected a Christian viewpoint. Now, that's really important because if the language of the Declaration of Independence is not this deist document that a lot of people have said it is, and over the course of your life and my life, that's what we've heard is that these founding fathers were deists and that uh, the language of the Declaration reflected the language of John Locke, who was a uh, British philosopher, wrote a lot in relationship to government. He actually wrote much more in relation to the Bible and theology than he did on, uh, than he did on just principles of law and government. That was uh, part of his foundation. In fact, he studied under Samuel Rutherford, who was the author of Lex Rex, which is one of the most significant political documents ever written in English history, meaning the, the law is king and not the king. The king isn't the final authority. Law is the final authority. And this was just one of numerous uh, documents that are within the flow of English or British political thought that laid a foundation on which, a legal foundation on which the Declaration of Independence was grounded and that the foundation of the Declaration of Independence wasn't on Enlightenment ideas, but that it was on a tradition grounded in British common law that was ultimately grounded on the Bible and Christianity. And so this book by Gary Amos is called Defending the Constitution. One of the things that he points out that I want to mention briefly is in the preamble. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, that is the opening 
the preamble to the Declaration of Independence here, and the foundation or the authority that Jefferson states for their Declaration of Independence, the laws of nature and nature's God. Now, this gets into what I think is a real sticky wicket in the history of ideas and theology, and that is the, this terminology, the laws of nature, and another term, natural law. Now, natural law is an idea that does come out of the Enlightenment, but the term natural law, as Gary Amos demonstrates quite, uh, uh, quite extensively, are not identical. The term laws of nature, for those of you who've been coming on Tuesday nights in our study of Romans, was a term that referred to the nonverbal moral law that God embedded within creation that is knowable to some degree by every single human being and therefore carries with it a measure of authority, at least enough authority, Paul says in, in Romans uh, 1, 18 to uh, 21, at least enough uh, information to hold everybody accountable for the knowledge of God's existence. So the laws of, of nature focused on this term uh, this moral law, this non-reveal law that would have been the foundation for all thought prior to the revelation of the Mosaic Code, the law of Moses. The law of nature's God was another term that was did not derive from the, uh, uh, from, from the Enlightenment, but also had a rich history going back into the Middle Ages, that was used to refer to the law revealed in the Word. So that this phrase was used to refer to the nonverbal law, the moral law that was embedded by God as the creator within creation, and the laws of nature's God refer to that which was revealed in the Scripture. And this terminology and that phraseology is used again and again in British, uh, British legal documents it's used in theology going back into the Middle Ages far, far earlier than any Enlightenment or Deist ideas ever came along. And this terminology comes also comes directly and straight out of John Locke, so that Amos does a masterful job quoting not only original sources in terms of, of John Locke and Puritans and others, but also, uh, also from a number of secondary sources that are not popular. Uh, to read, arguing that this terminology had a rich history of specific Christian theological meaning, and it is not deist at all, and that Jefferson was not inventing some new basis for government, but that he was simply restating that which had, and using, using restating and using a centuries-old vocabulary that derived from British common law that related ultimate authority in all matters of law to uh, the scriptures and to Christianity. And so that is a remarkable contribution. And this is how the Supreme Court and lower courts interpreted this issue of separation of church and state. That terminology did not come out of the Constitution or Declaration. It's not in the Bill of Rights. That surprises a number of people. doesn't surprise you. We've gone over this many times. But it derived from a letter that Jefferson wrote to a Baptist church in Danbury, Connecticut, 
in order to just, uh, just affirm to them that with the rise of a uh, federalist government that there would not be any imposition from the gov- federal government upon uh, their, their freedoms. Uh, this term, separation of church and state, is not a legal term, although it became adopted as such in the late 20th century. Historically, it is irrelevant to understanding what the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, says. The Bill of Rights simply says the federal government shall not do anything to establish a religion or to restrict the free exercise thereof. And in the history of the uh, interpretation of law, uh, one has been uh, usually emphasized over the other rather than, rather than both. But in the 1890s, there was a Supreme Court case, and you ought to look it up and read about it on the Internet. I'm not going to spend time on a Sunday morning to talk about it. And it involved a church, Trinity Church in New York, and it's called Trinity Church versus the United States. And you can look it up and read the decision. And the uh, majority decision, it was a unanimous decision, and the majority decision was written by David Brewer, who was an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And the issue involved, it's so relevant today, I just love this. The issue was that this Trinity Church, Anglican, our Episcopal Church in New York, had brought an Anglican minister in who ran afoul of the immigration law. And he was an illegal alien. See, the term alien is a legally defined term in uh, legal history, uh, in the history of laws in the United States. And that as a result, he was being, his, his uh, legitimacy and his stay in the United States was being challenged and they wanted to, the government wanted to deport him. And so the court case involved whether or not he should stay and it brought up the immigration laws. And at that time, the immigration laws they were saying did not apply in this sense to those who were what we'd call today professionals, especially to the clergy. And this whole argument, a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, basically argues that it does not apply to bringing a clergy member to the United States because we are a religious nation. That's a direct quote from that decision. And when they use the term religious nation, then they cited a whole history of, of, of events and facts and circumstances, uh, law codes, con- statements in various state constitution, federal documents, going back to the original charter given by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella to, uh, to Columbus to come to the uh, United States, to, 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 rather to go in search of continents or islands where the Christian gospel could be proclaimed. And so the argument was that throughout all of, all of history, the history of the colonies up to that present time, that uh, it was, we were a religious nation, but all the examples applied to Christianity, which means that they understood religion in the sense of a Christian nation. But he goes on to say in a series of, of lectures that he gave at Haverford uh, College some years later, that what is meant by a Christian nation is not a theocracy. It does not mean that the government is trying to impose Christianity upon anybody. It does not mean that people who are not Christians do not have every opportunity to participate at every level of society, culture, and government, but that the foundation ideas of this nation come out of, uh, out of the Bible and out of Christianity and that that is our historic framework. It's a remarkable decision, 
and it is one that, of course, is ignored today. A unanimous decision by the Supreme Court is, uh, of course, a significant, significant decision. But this shows us that the history of this nation and the foundation of this nation has been under assault from the, I believe, from the early 19th century, early 1800s. And some of the ideas that were presented um, by Locke and by by Jefferson, neither of them were deists. Nobody in uh, nobody who signed the Declaration was a deist. A deist did not believe that God is involved in any way, shape, or form with his creation after he created. He just sort of created it, tossed it out there, and then he went off somewhere else, and things go on as they go. You don't pray. A, a deist would never pray to God. Jefferson prayed. Um, John Locke prayed. John Locke uh, made a number of other statements, the, a lot of which I need to investigate more. But uh, even Franklin, who's the other one, Locke, I mean, uh, Franklin and Jefferson are the ones that are often said to be deist. And so they did not hold, neither of them were, were true deists. They were more what we would call, uh, historically, they were historical Unitarians at that time, not what would be a Unitarian today, but what was a Unitarian at that time. Uh, if they were that, uh, Jefferson was. I'm not sure about Locke at this point. But the point is that the, found, the language of the Declaration of Independence and the basis of the authority for their actions is clearly grounded in a Christian concept of law and a Christian view of God. And that is one facet that makes this a Christian nation. Now, part of this, in this whole historical debate dealing with Jefferson and Locke and those has to do with another important doctrine, which is part of what we're looking at this morning, and that is the deity of Christ. So let's look at our text in Colossians chapter 1. I put both verse 18 and verse 19 up on the screen because verse 19 develops out of verse 18, so I wanted to remind you of this context. Verse 18 and 19, Paul continues this focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. The focus began to in, in emphasizing the sufficiency of Christ in verse 15, that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. We began to emphasize his deity at that point, but the the focus, focus, focal point of this section is on Jesus as sufficient. Now, one of the ideas, one of the issues out of this that has come up, a couple of people uh, raised a question. We've had some good dis- discussion on this. I talk about the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus isn't just sufficient. He's the only way. Another way that exclusivity is talked about within philosophy and logic terms is necessity that he and that's just another way of talking about exclusivity what i'm wondering is if sufficiency is a subset of of exclusivity because it seems like what paul argues here is because jesus is who he is there can be no other way and because he is who he is he is sufficient and we have to understand truly and fully who Jesus is, and that in turn impacts how we trust him for everything in our life because he, we know that he is not a mere man. 
We know that he is not just some creature who was given deity as some would interpret it, but that he was in himself eternal and true God. And so Paul began this section in verse 15 talking about the fact that Jesus is the image or the expression of the invisible God and that in verses 16 and 17 he's the one who created all things and by him all things are sustained. And then in verse 18 Paul says beyond his sufficiency as creator he is also the head of the body, the church. So he is sufficient as creator and for us as Christians he is our head he is the authority and his authority as I pointed out last time is always connected to his care and his concern and his nurture of those who are under his authority so Paul says that he is the head of the body the church who is the beginning that is he is the starting point of this new organism the church which is given birth to because of his resurrection. That's what's brought in in the next phrase. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in all things he may have the preeminence. And as I pointed out last time, his preeminence as the Son of God from all eternity was already was established prior to the incarnation because Jesus is fully God. He is over all the angels in his deity. He is over everything in creation because he is, as Paul has stated in verse 16, he is the one who created. But what this is talking about in terms of his preeminence is his hypostatic union. The fact that as a creature now, deity joined with humanity. As a creature, he is elevated above the angels, above everything, so that now seated at the right hand of God the Father, we have Jesus Christ in what we refer to theologically as the session of Christ. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, awaiting the next step in God's plan for him, which is for him to return uh, for the church at the rapture. And then after the tribulation, he will be given uh, the kingdom. Now, Paul is going to explain something about this further in verse 19 when he says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That first word gives us a real clue as to the meaning here because in, in the Greek text, it's a, the word hadi, which indicates something related to either you're going to expand on a point or you're going to give the cause or ground of the statement that you just made. And so in verse 19, Paul gives the ground, the basis for stating everything in verse 18, why he is the head of the body of the church, why he is the beginning, why he is the firstborn from the dead, and why has he given preeminence because of his deity because within him he's not just a man within him is all the fullness of deity but when we get into this verse in verse 19 there are some um, there's some translation problems it is a difficult verse to translate from the greek there are three key words the first is the verb eudokeo eudokeo means to be pleased. It's accurately translated. The difficulty is the grammar. It's an aorist active indicative. Aorist means it's a simple past. It's just summarizing a past event. Uh, in this case, 
at some time in the past, uh, it pleased. Now, it's an active voice, but there's no statement of the subject who performs the action of the verb. So if you look on the screen, you see that I have the uh, two words, the father, italicized, and that's because they're not in the original. There's no clear statement of the subject of the verb, the one who performs the action. And it is a word that even though it's active in its grammatical sense, it's hard for us to uh, state this as a past without making it sound something like a passive. It, it pleased or the father was pleased. See, that indicates sort of a passive idea. Um, second word that's important here is at the end of the sentence, and this is a word that's translated dwell, which is a fine translation. It's the uh, Greek verb kat or keo, which means to live somewhere, to dwell, to inhabit. And uh, again, this is, but this is not, and I mistyped there, it's an aorist active infinitive. It's not an indicative, it's an infinitive. Now, when er and the problem with this is that grammatically, when you have this kind of a construction with this, with these with this particular verb, eutikeo, uh, this, uh, this next phrase, all the fullness, is, would be taken as the subject. But that really doesn't translate well into English. And so the gram grammatical issue here is that with the, using the verb eutikeo plus an infinitive, that the, the phrase all the fullness would appear to be the uh, would appear to be the subject of the verb to please. And that would read something along the lines of, for all the fullness was ple pleased that in him should dwell. Doesn't make a lot of sense. All the fullness is really sort of a circumlocution. It's speaking about the full essence of God. And we see this in the, at the end of this section in Colossians 2.9, where Paul again states this, but in a little more expanded way, for in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If you look at verse 18, uh, 19, 119, down through 2.9, we have what appears to be an inclusio, that is a section where something is stated at the beginning Something almost identical is stated at the end, which ties everything in between together in one package. And what uh, Paul is doing here is emphasizing the significance of the deity of Christ, that he is not only sufficient, as stated in verses 15 through 18, but in this section he's going to develop the, this aspect of his exclusivity or the necessity that Jesus and Jesus alone can do this. And the reason Jesus alone can do this is because he is fully God. And only one who is fully God can provide and supply everything for us. A human being, a creature, cannot do this. Only one who is fully God uh, can do this. So when we look at this statement where... Uh, all the fullness in, in the idea that this is used as the subject for all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him. Uh, 
Uh, the phrase, all the fullness, based on looking at Colossians 2.9, is simply a way of expressing all that God is, all of his attributes, all of his essence, so that what Paul states, in a sense, a little bit cryptically in verse 19, he expands on fully by the time we get to uh, 2.9, and that is that Jesus possesses all of the attributes of deity in himself. Now, when we look at the essence of God, I've frequently used this chart to indicate his attributes, using 10 attributes of God. Others use some other combinations of attributes that have been used by various theologians, but this is a good summation that pretty much covers everything related to the essence of God. I like using something like a dotted line because God is not in a box. He's not finite. He's infinite. And so all of these attributes are not restricted. They are all uh, infinite. God is infinitely love. He is infinite knowledge or omniscience, infinite presence, uh, infinite power. So we have the attributes. God is sovereign, righteous. He is just. He's love. He's eternal life. That means he has no beginning and no end. He's omniscient. He knows all things. There's nothing God does not know. There's no possibility or hypothetical that God doesn't know. When you say, well, I wonder what would have happened if uh, Santa Ana had been awake <laughs> on San Jacinto Day and alert. wonder what Texas would have been like. Or if we think, wonder what would have happened if... Uh, if when Washington was crossing the Delaware, if they had hit a big chunk of ice and gone down. I wonder what would have happened if uh, Lee had won at Gettysburg. You know, what if of history? God knows. wonder what would have happened if you'd gone to uh, Harvard instead of wherever it is you went to university. wonder what would have happened if you would have not married so-and-so and married so-and-so or the other way around. Uh, what would have happened if you had gone to college or not gone to college? All those what-ifs. God knows exactly what would have happened. When you think about that, it boggles your mind because there's an almost an infinite number of possibilities. And God knows what would have happened in every single one of those. So his omniscience is that which makes him aware of everything that could have possibly taken place. It's beyond anything we can imagine. His knowledge is not our knowledge, nor his ways our ways, as Isaiah says. He's omnipresent, which means he is present to every aspect of his creation at all times. Because he is infinite and because creation is finite, God is present to everything at all times. Nothing escapes his knowledge, his presence, his awareness, and he's fully present to every aspect, every molecule, every atom of his creation at all times. And he is omnipotent, meaning that there is nothing that is impossible with God. He can do whatever he wishes to do that is consistent with his character. He is absolute truth, and he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So these are the attributes of God. And they are fully and completely shared by each person of the Trinity. They are one in essence, we say, and three in person, so that the Father possesses all of these attributes equally with the Son. And the Father and the Son share these attributes equally with one another. But it is not just that you have three people, three persons who have the same attributes. They're not identical triplets. 
they share within one another in a unity that goes beyond anything we can ever comprehend so that they are one, they are a complete unity so that everything that is said of one can be said of the other. They participate fully and completely within one another and this is the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he prayed to the Father that he's one with the Father and he prayed that we as believers might be one with them as he is one with the Father. So there is a unity there. So that what this says, what the Scripture teaches, is that Jesus is fully and equally God. He didn't gain deity at some time in eternity past, which was the view of the uh, ancient Arians, the Arian heresy. It's not that he received deity when he was baptized by John the Baptist, and when uh, the Holy Spirit uh, flew over him, the Holy Spirit, Spirit didn't do a div- divinity dump on him, and um, so that Jesus at that time suddenly became God. Uh, that's a view that some people hold, and it isn't just that he he uh, somehow represents all of our aspirations of what God should be like. It is that he is God fully and completely in and of himself. Now, this is an important thing to think about. There are those, of course, who have always opposed the doctrine of the deity of Christ. I mentioned earlier in speaking of the uh, Declaration of Independence that there were those at the time uh, in in what became the United States and the colonies, really started in the colonies about that time, uh, the idea of Unitarianism and in uh, original Unitarianism, they still believed that Jesus was the only way to salvation, but they didn't believe that Jesus was fully God. Now, don't try to figure that out. You're going to get all messed up in your head if you do, because you can't have a divine Savior. Uh, you can't have a sufficient salvation if you don't have a fully divine Savior. That's been the view of the church all the way back to this council that was called in 325 B.C. called the Council of Nicaea. See, there I go running down that road of history once again. And the more I study, the more I read, just watching the evening news and the things that are going on in the world today, the more I'm aware that that the way in which we, we... The reason we lose our freedoms is because we are ignorant of history, and so we can let uh, allow the politicians and the lawyers to uh, blindfold us because we are ignorant of history, and we don't know what, uh, what the historical precedents are. For example, what I said earlier regarding, uh, regarding Locke and Jefferson and deism. Uh, starting in the early, as I pointed out, starting in the early 1800s, there was this revisionism that took place because by the mid eight, middle, early to middle 1800s, philosophers and historians have accepted all of the full-blown assumptions of the Enlightenment. They're living in a post-Kantian period uh, that refers to Immanuel Kant. And so therefore, now they're going back and they're reading Jefferson and Locke and others with these post-Kantian glasses on. And, and so they're reinterpreting history. And that led them to the conclusion by the, that became uh, pretty much set in uh, stone by the early 20th century that so many of the founding fathers were not really Christians, they were really deists. And so as a result of that historical revisionism, 
we have to go back, read the original writings, read what they said, understand what they said in, in the original language. So we have to go back again and again to original documents and understand things. Well, at Nicaea, in 325, the emperor of the Roman Empire, uh, who had moved his capital to uh, to Byzantium, or as it became known, Constantinople, named after him, had a little eruption of a theological conflict in his empire, and he didn't like that. He wanted everybody happy and peaceful, you know, all of his children holding hands and getting along, and so he decided to call a church council that met at Nicaea, which is a suburb of Constantinople uh, just across the Bosphorus. And so they met, and one of the issues that they needed to resolve was the relationship of the son to the father. And it was at that council that they clearly articulated in a theological sense the language of the hypostatic union and language of the deity of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that nobody believed that before, but they hadn't really solidified the language, and they had this upstart from uh, from Egypt named Arius, who was running around uh, singing these little uh, worship songs, saying that there was a time when Christ was not. And so he didn't believe in the eternality of Jesus. If Jesus is an eternal, he can't be God. And so this had caused lots of problems, and so Constantine called this conference. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is because about a week ago, I got a telephone call from a pastor a friend of mine, and he asked, he said, I got a question for you. He said, I've never heard anybody say this before, and I just want to run it by you to see if you're, you think this is saying the same thing that I think it's saying. Now, he didn't give me any more background than that. And he said, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said that I needed to learn how to read the New Testament from a pre, without a, post-con, a post-Constantine bias. I had never heard that phrase either. But I thought about it, and I said, well, what, what, what's Constantine got to do with anything? Well, he called the Council of Nicaea. Oh, okay, so now I'm walking, walking down the road here, and I'm saying, okay, the, the claim that you often get from the people who challenge the deity of Christ and the Trinity is that this was invented at Nicaea, and it was all because of Constantine, and they claimed that Constantine did that. Shirley MacLaine tried to pull this off back in the 80s when she was out on a broken limb. And um, this was the idea. So I, I said, well, I think this is what they're saying. He said, well, you must be right, because the person who said that was a Jehovah's Witness. Well, that makes sense, because Jehovah's Witness is the modern version of Arianism, and they do not believe that Jesus was fully God. They believe in a Unitarian concept of God. And Jesus picks up deity along the way at his baptism. So this is important for us to know that Jesus is God, not just because it's this abstract doctrine, but because the weight of the New Testament is on this truth. If Jesus isn't fully God, then let's all go home. Let's, let's go have a barbecue this afternoon and just have a big party for the rest of the weekend because nothing in the Scripture is worth spending any time on because everything is predicated on this idea that Jesus is God. Now, how do we know that? Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it, rhetorical question. Can you give me two passages from the Old Testament, two passages from the New Testament that demonstrate that Jesus is God? 
just off the top of your head. Okay, you should have done at least, you should have thought of at least one by now, if not two or three. If not, you fail, you need to go to Christianity 101, go back and listen to my Christology series. Old Testament, let me just give you three Old Testament passages and three New Testament passages that you can go to to prove the deity of Christ. In the Old Testament, first one I would go to is the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. There, God promised to David that he would have an heir that would sit on his throne forever. Now, there's that concept of eternity. Only God is eternal. So only a divine person could sit on David's throne forever. And so in 1 Chronicles 17, 12, God promised David that an heir in verse 11 and in verse 12, he says, he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. And then in verse 14, and I will establish him in my house and my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. So it's an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. Only someone who is, has eternity as an attribute can fulfill that role. So the first place to go would be the Davidic covenant. And then expanding on that, you have the promise in Isaiah 7.14 does the same thing, but Isaiah 9.6, very well-known passage usually uh, recited at Christmas. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and then that next phrase is really poorly translated. Uh, uh, mighty, it's mighty God. Uh, it's the next phrase that's poorly translated. Eternal Father. Literally, it's Father of Eternity. But he's called Mighty God. Now, how can a child who is born not be God if he's going to be called Mighty God? So right there you have two aspects. He's called Mighty God, and he is the Father of Eternity, which is a Hebrew idiom meaning he's eternal. So this son who is born doesn't get his beginning at his birth. He is eternal. Only God's eternal. And then in verse 7, regarding his king, now this verse 7 ties right back to the Davidic covenant. God promises that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So that that reiterates, connects the child that's born, the son that's given, to the promise made to David. And then in Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, we get a a narrowing of the prophecies related to to the Messiah, where he's going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's called Bethlehem Ephrata because this was one of the uh, early founders of the city, but it is the city of David. And in Micah 5.2, we read, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So here he's, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's eternal. So three places you have in the Old Testament related to the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant that he is eternal. He shares in the attribute of deity. You can't be uh, 
you're not just a human if you're eternal. Eternal from the past, Micah 5.2, eternal into the future from Isaiah uh, 9.6. Then you get into the New Testament. Three key passages in the New Testament, one of which is the passage we're looking at in Colossians. But in John chapter 1, in the first three verses, the writer of the gospel locates Jesus' origin in eternity. It's a non-origin. It is an eternal origin. He doesn't start in with the birth of the humanity of Jesus as Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He starts with his eternality. He writes, in the beginning was the word. Now that phrase, in the beginning, connects to the first phrase in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. It is uh, specifically referencing a beginning of something, the beginning of time and the beginning of history. Uh, the idea there is, in the Greek, it's in arche. Often in the Greek, when you have a preposition attached to a noun, uh, it takes the place of an article. Also, the noun beginning is, a, is an absolute, so it doesn't require an article to be definite. So it is specifically talking about at the time that time began. And then it uses the verb, uh, it uses the verb uh, a me in an imperfect sense, which is continuous action. And the force of it is that the word already was existing. So at the beginning of time, the word already was existing and continuing in existence. And then he goes on to say, and the word was with God, and then the word was God. And the word here, a, a me, which is the verb, is what we call an equative verb, just like is in English. What's on one side of the is equals the other side. And so the word equals God, God equals the word. Then he goes on in verse 2 to say, He was in the beginning with God, so he's there at creation. That's Colossians 1.16. In verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That's, again, Colossians 1.16. But who's this word? Well, in John 1.14, John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word there that is translated became flesh is the idea of something that moves from one thing state to another. Something new happened, but he already was in existence and something new came into existence, and that is the addition of flesh. Now that idea of the incarnation is then further developed in Philippians chapter 2. So in the New Testament, you go to John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and then if you also you want to add something else, you can add Hebrews 1. John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Just remember, first chapters, John, Colossians, Hebrews. But we'll look at Philippians 2 a little uh, fuller. There, Paul says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Very practical command here. He wanted everybody to have an attitude of humility. And to understand where this comes from, you have to go back to the Incarnation. So Paul says that we have to have the same mentality that Jesus had. And what was that? Well, he was, verse 6, he was in the form of God. 
Now that word that's translated form is a is a word in the Greek called morphe. We get our word morphological or something changes, it morphs. And it's the idea of form. And it goes back into into philosophic thought in Greek and, and it has to do not with the external shape of something, but with the internal essence of something. So what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was in the very essence of God, but he didn't consider it something, and it's the translation here, robbery to be equal with God. It's Literally it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed hold of and held onto out of desperation. That That's the idea. What, did, what was the temptation for Eve and Adam in the garden? If you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. She grabbed for it. Jesus is God, and he's not grabbing for it. That's the contrast that Paul is making here. That he's in, he is God, but he is not holding on to it out of desperation. He's willing to relinquish the utilization of his divine attributes. That's the point of verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness. There's another word that's important. It relates to the physical structure, physical form of man. So he's essentially God, but he adds to himself humanity. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's what humility is. Humility is saying, I have every right to something, but I'm not going to exercise that right. For the purpose of a greater goal and a higher objective, I'm going to relinquish that right. Now, what this is saying is that Jesus freely relinquished the utilization of his divine attributes for the purpose of demonstrating obedience to God in his humanity. It doesn't mean Jesus never functioned in his divine attributes. He did. He changed the water into wine, and he healed the blind man and did other things. But he never did those things to solve his own personal problems. Whenever he had personal challenges in life, he relied upon God and the scriptures to demonstrate that's how we were to do it as human beings. He wasn't saying, well, see, I can solve all these problems and resist temptation because I rely on my deity. He only utilized his deity. He only pierced that firewall to his deity on occasion in order to demonstrate that he was who he claimed to be, that is, God in the flesh. So, therefore, as a result of his humility, God exalts him and gives him the name which is above every name. So what we see when we look at the scripture is that there is a prophecy from the Old Testament in the Davidic covenant, Isaiah 9, 6, and Micah 5, 2, that there is a one coming who will be fully God. In the New Testament, we see that this is Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. He is the one who is God from all eternity past. He is God. He was with God, and he is the creator of all things. We see this again in Colossians chapter 1. So in the New Testament, you have John 1, Philippians 2, and Colossians 1. And in the statement that uh, Paul makes here in verse 19, that in, Christ, in him all the fullness dwelt. Now, why is that important? Because only as God could Jesus do verse 20. 
Verse 20 brings us to the doctrine of reconciliation. By him, because the fullness of God dwells in him, he reconciles all things, God reconciles all things to himself. If Jesus isn't God, reconciliation, which is connected to forgiveness, can't happen. It is the only way. Jesus is the only one who can provide that. Jesus is not only sufficient, he's necessary. He is the only way. And no one else and nothing else can resolve the problem that exists between God and man. And so the deity of Christ isn't just some secondary idea that somehow popped up in human history, and it's one of those abstract things. If you don't have a divine Jesus, a fully divine Jesus from all eternity, you don't have reconciliation with God. You don't have forgiveness in terms of sin. You don't have eternal life. You have, we have nothing. There is no help. We're just lost in the muddle of our own sin. So the idea and the doctrine of the deity of Christ is central to everything we are. And what Paul's going to do with this is build the message of Colossians to challenge us to walk consistently with Christ and to let the fullness of the Word of God richly dwell within us. We'll come back next time and look at the doctrine of reconciliation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of how tremendous and wonderful our salvation and our Savior is, that he is eternal God, and that he relinquished the independent use of his, of his deity, the utilization of his deity to solve his own problems when he entered into human history as a baby in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Father, we pray that as we study, continue to study these things in Colossians, that we might come to a genuine understanding of how Jesus truly changes everything for us because he is God, and that that is so central to everything we believe that it should change everything we believe in all that we are. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would make this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, for my sins, for everyone's sin. As Colossians tells us, he reconciled the world to God. He satisfied, also satisfied the Father's demand for righteousness and justice so that only by Jesus can we have eternal life. And all that is necessary is to trust in him. It's not based on works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy, we're saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths as we think about them, meditate upon them as we go throughout our day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.